Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Mike Warren. That's David Drucker. That's Andrew Egger. And it's a Dispatch Politics takeover of the Dispatch Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the presidential race, the polls, both the primary and the general election polls. Uh, Is Trump acting as if the primary is over, particularly vis-a-vis the pro-life movement? We'll talk about Biden's age and how the Biden campaign plans to use Make America Great Again to their advantage. We'll also dive into Capitol Hill politics. A shutdown is looming. How is that going to affect things on Capitol Hill as well as beyond? As Virginia has some legislative elections coming up that could be affected by a shutdown. Plus, we'll do some not worth your time. Let's dive in. about the primary anymore i mean really let's uh, let's just talk about these primary uh polls here i'm looking at 2024 iowa republican presidential caucus polls not a ton there but donald trump averaging at real core politics almost 49 percent support uh, ron DeSantis, the governor of florida has got 14 percent support nikki haley in a third place at nine i mean Besides Ron DeSantis in Iowa, it really doesn't seem like anybody is even within striking distance of Donald Trump in Iowa. And then we look at New Hampshire. It's even uh, it's maybe not as uh, dominant where Donald Trump is. He's got about, what, 45 percent. The latest CNN poll has him at 39 percent in New Hampshire. But it's a more split field. You've got DeSantis, uh, I should say, sorry, uh, Vivek. Ramaswamy at 13% in that CNN poll, Chris Christie at 11% and DeSantis at 10%. Oh, Nikki Haley, I should say, at 12% in that CNN poll. So kind of a a, a race for second place in New Hampshire. Um, (laughs) When we look at the national polls, and I know, David Drucker, you don't like to look at national polls for a primary, but it just underscores the dominance that Trump currently has. He's averaging 60% support among Republican primary voters nationally. Uh, Is this primary over, David Drucker? Is this Donald Trump's to lose? Well, I'm not quite ready to pull a dandy Don Meredith and sing the party's over. But (laughs) old school reference for the Monday Night Football fans out there. But um, look, I think we clearly have two Republican primary contests going on right now. I think we've got Donald Trump versus Donald Trump. And then I think we've got uh, a group of candidates competing, uh, not necessarily for second place, because second place is Bubkus, but they're competing to become, they hope, the consensus alternative to Donald Trump. And the question is whether or not any of them is ever going to get there. If you can become the consensus alternative and and coalesce uh a good, not just a slim, but a very healthy majority of the voters that right now say they're voting for somebody else other than Trump, then maybe you have a chance to pull an upset in Iowa, pull an upset in New Hampshire, and make this thing a real race. And clearly, there's a lot of interest in this race to become the consensus alternative to Trump. We cover it a lot 
Um, and, and the feedback we get is that people want to know what these candidates are doing and how they're trying to do that. But I think we have to be honest and clear about what's going on with this contest right now. Trump, at least according to the polling as it stands right now, has not suffered at all for acting like a de facto incumbent, skipping the first debate, plans to skip the next debate. Unclear that he'll walk down the street in Florida for the third debate, which is supposed to be in Miami, after they played with the idea of holding it in Alabama. Um, and his numbers just go up every time he gets indicted, every time um, he gets himself into legal trouble, every time he says something off color. And and that just means that right now, that's what the majority of Republican primary voters want. And it 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 the longer this goes on, the more it seems as though he won't lose. So that just leads me to this final place, which is we have seen over the years that sometimes this is how a contest looks. And then anywhere from one week to six weeks out before the Iowa caucuses, things tighten and change. Or in other words, voters really dial in, give a deeper thought to what they want and start to appear to make different choices. It's still possible that could happen. I wouldn't sleep on Iowa. It's this like nagging thing in the back of my head. But um, the race that we see today is clearly the race that we see today. Yeah, I mean, Iowa always seems like it has the potential because it has in the past uh, elevated surprising candidates, uh, candidates that uh, sort of nobody in uh, you know, the mainstream or the East Coast media, the political media here in Washington uh, thinks uh, should should even be mentioned uh, with uh, in the same breath as the front runner. I mean, you look back to 2008, Mike Huckabee surprises everybody in Iowa uh, and winning that primary uh, that caucus there. Uh, and then you've got in 2012, uh, Rick, <laughs> Rick Santorum uh, sort of winning barely kind of on a technicality, never really getting the bump, but surprising a lot of people uh, coming from kind of nowhere um, to challenge Mitt Romney, the eventual nominee. Um, you know, the same thing happened in 2016. Ted Cruz wins the Iowa caucuses. But there's a through line in all of this, Andrew, which is that all those people who surprise in Iowa, at least in the last three competitive Republican nominating contests, don't end up being the nominee. They end up sort of uh, jolting uh, the nominees, uh, the eventual nominees campaign into overdrive. Uh, that doesn't even seem to be happening here. I'm, again, I'm, uh, I'm looking back and there's not a, a ton of great Iowa polling, but Ron DeSantis, again, would be sort of in the best position, maybe Nikki Haley uh, to do something. And, and let's just look at the, the kind of downward spiral for Ron DeSantis in Iowa, you know, at, uh, back in July, uh, he was at 20 points in Iowa. The, la the, the latest poll, Fox Business poll, has him at 15. Not in the right direction, not going in the right direction. Nikki Haley's bumped up a little bit since uh, her pretty good performance in the first debate. But again, she's getting, what, 10%, 11% in these polls uh, nobody seems to be catching up. What's going on in Iowa and, and how do you read this? And do you expect Iowa to surprise us again? Well, this is the, the double-edged sword of these early states, Iowa and New Hampshire, where, where the, uh, the electorate is 
unusually locked in, sees themselves as having kind of this civic duty of of being the first line of defense winnowing these candidates. If you're somebody like Ron DeSantis and you were coming into the Iowa caucuses with the polls already nationally looking like a real two-man race, uh, I think you could count on a lot of Iowa voters, a lot of New Hampshire voters to do a lot of soul searching and, and not think of Donald Trump as the the inherent incumbent and 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 really, you know, uh, have a real shot of, of them breaking your way rather than his way between the two of you. But when you have this situation where there is not this kind of growing consensus that that those are the top two guys, when you have Trump and then you kind of have everybody else, well, then all the voters in Iowa, they they activate the the, the really, uh, really intensive part of their brains where they're like, well, I got to give Vivek a shot. I got to give Nikki Haley a shot. I got to go see what Tim Scott has to say. Maybe I'm going to go for Mike Pence, you know, and and this is not an environment where where Ron DeSantis is poised to make up 40 points or something like that, where if, if you have a significant chunk of the electorate who's actually attending uh, all kinds of different events and, and essentially trying to give every single candidate the handshake test, that's not where Ron DeSantis wanted to be. Um, so I, I think and there's and then there's also, you know, another portion of the electorate, even in states like like New Hampshire and Iowa, where if they're presented with a, uh, a, a test like, well, OK, is it Trump or DeSantis? That's an easier math problem to get your mind around than am I going to vote for Donald Trump or caucus for Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Vivek Ramaswamy or five or six other people. And in that environment, um, you know, the, the more informed people are, are, are uh, breaking a bunch of different directions. And some of the less informed people, um, not uninformed, but just people who have not spent enormous amounts of brain power on this, are more and more defaulting back to Donald Trump because he seems like the consensus candidate. So Ron DeSantis kind of gets it uh, from, from both directions uh, uh, in this environment we're in right now. Let's shift a bit to New Hampshire uh, very quickly, because it's that's even more sort of spread out who's at who's in second place. I mean, you could you could sort of look across at DeSantis, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, even Nikki Haley, uh, and and see scenarios where all of them are vying again for second place. Maybe they can uh, jump ahead. And it's worth noting that New Hampshire has an open primary, David, uh, which means that independent voters. And even Democrats uh, can register uh, and go vote in, I guess they, they can go vote in the Republican primary. If there's no action on the Democratic side, which there won't be, uh, RFK Jr. notwithstanding, um, they could have an influence. I've always thought that could be kind of interesting. But it, again, it suffers some of the similar problems that Andrew was just talking about. If you're a non-Trump candidate in New Hampshire, um, you, you kind of could see something in all of those candidates I just mentioned for independent voters, for non-Trump Republican voters, for Democratic voters to, to kind of see uh, uh, see something they like uh, and, and ends up with Donald Trump on the top. Do you, do you see anything uh, on the horizon in New Hampshire that we should be watching for that, that gives you reason to think Chris Christie or Vivek or Nikki Haley or even Ron DeSantis have, have some kind of upper hand in the Granite State? Well, I mean, yes and no, but but I think we need to look at it like this. Um, first of all, winning begets winning in presidential primaries. You know, I often get asked, well, you know, what if candidate X wins Iowa, but candidate, B, you know, Y can win New Hampshire? And then, hey, how about candidate, you know, Z seems to be a great fit for these Super Tuesday states. And then, of course, I always have to remind them that if you don't, if if we don't have a competitive situation in the early primary states, where you know 
a candidate wins in Iowa, a candidate wins in New Hampshire, a candidate wins in South Carolina, then nobody's coming out of the woodwork after that, right? So if Trump wins Iowa, given where his numbers are and given, you know, we're dealing with a former president with such a strong base of support inside the party, this this race is not going to suddenly become competitive in New Hampshire, no matter what the polling is. People are going to look at a Trump victory in Iowa and say, looks like we've got our nominee. Let's move on. We're going to focus on Biden. Also, it just impacts voter behavior. They go with the winner. They don't say to themselves, you know, I've been a DeSantis fan all along. And even though he came in fifth in Iowa, I'm just using him as an example. I'm here in New Hampshire. I'm voting for DeSantis. They're going to be like, it doesn't look like that guy's got it. So maybe I'm, I guess I'm voting for Trump or, well, if anybody can beat Trump in New Hampshire, this is the person who came in second in Iowa. I'll go with them. So you've got to win because it attracts more support and money fundraising, both grassroots and wealthy donors as the primary progresses. You, you don't get to lose and you don't get to lose in these early states and then come on strong later. Now, there are times when we've seen, you know, if we go back to 2008, you know, McCain is, is his candidacy is almost dead. He doesn't really compete in Iowa, but then he wins New Hampshire. But we were also dealing with a, a different situation. We weren't dealing with a former president, Donald Trump, that most Republican voters don't actually think he lost. So you don't actually have an electability argument to make that. You know, you got to you got to really second guess your support for Trump because he can't beat Biden. Oh, yeah. Look at the polling. You know, we've just been discussing. And I know, Mike, you want to get deeper into the general election polling. No Republican voter thinks Trump is unelectable. In fact, they think he's the most electable against Biden right now. So I, I don't know how you make that argument unless things change drastically. The one thing I will say about New Hampshire, which I find interesting, at least from the uh, CNN University of New Hampshire poll that was released, I believe the day before we were recorded, is that it shows Trump at New Hampshire at 39%. And then you've got Christy Ramaswamy and Haley all in double digits. And then when you throw in Tim Scott in single digits and a couple others, there are more. there is more support right now for a non-Trump candidate than there is for Trump. It's the thing that most closely resembles what we saw in 2016 in almost every primary um, and so far, the only time I've seen that so far, really in a big way, where if you added up all this support, it surpasses Trump's 39%, which shows you that in theory, if this field were to ever winnow, uh, maybe a good candidate could make this competitive. The problem is, is this thing going to winnow? Because everybody's got some sort of belief that if I can just get to Iowa, I can be the next Mike Huckabee, I can be the next Rick Santorum, or I can be the next McCain, New Hampshire, 2000, circa 2008. And, you know, unless they just start to drop off and voters make their own decisions, but we're not seeing that yet. You know, uh, it's interesting because if Donald Trump were listening to this podcast, which I don't think he is, but maybe he is, um, he would say all of this discussion we've been having is pointless because I'm going to be the nominee. And he seems to be acting that way. Uh, Andrew, you had, I thought, a great piece in Wednesday's Dispatch Politics, which all of you should be subscribing to Dispatch Politics Monday, Wednesday, Friday in your inbox uh, from the three of us and, and anybody else who is writing about politics will throw what they have in there as well. But uh, Andrew, had this, uh, you had this great piece um, looking at Trump's 
essentially uh, uh, pushing away, uh, driving the bus over uh, the pro-life movement, the sort of official pro-life movement, uh, and demonstrating that he sort of thinks that this primary is over. In fact, you wrote what has changed the state of the primary. Trump is already the comfortable front runner uh, at the time of his prior abortion comments dust up. That's referring to uh, his sort of idea uh, that he expressed earlier this year um, that uh, abortion is uh, not good uh, as an issue for Republicans. He essentially doubled down on that in his interview over this past weekend with Kristen Welker of NBC. Um, a lot of the abortion uh, opponents, the pro-life groups, uh, tried to kind of push back. They didn't really uh, push back forcefully. What happened and what does it say about where things are in this primary uh, race that we continue to want to talk about? Yeah. So um, there's basically two really instructive uh, moments here. And the first took place back in April. Um, The Trump campaign responded to a comment from a Washington Post story that was asking kind of about their abortion position, basically saying mission accomplished. We got Roe done. Her lifers should be happy. It's it's back with the states and that's where it ought to be. Um, And that uh, that got a lot of these, um, you know, professional pro-life groups um, kind of hot around the collar because they all endorse some kind of national federal legislation for abortion. Um, usually they, 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 they treat like a 15-week uh, federal ban with exceptions, which is the, the thing that, that Senator Lindsey Graham has introduced uh, since, since the Dobbs decision. They see that as kind of like their, their baseline federal policy that they want every candidate to get behind and specifically every presidential candidate. They, they really want uh, a Republican presidential nominee to be leading from the front on that. Um, so back in April, when Trump kind of suggested that uh, uh, that that wasn't where they were at, he got a lot of this pushback. He got a lot of groups kind of drawing a line in the sand, and he walked it back. He he kind of said he didn't he didn't endorse the 15 week legislation, but he he did you know uh, make some comments to to the effect that there is a, there is a federal role to be played here policy wise. Well, now you kind of fast forward to now and and this this interview on Sunday uh, he he was still being very coy about this specific question of the of you know whether there's going to be federal action uh, he he at some point at one point said federal state I don't really care um, what 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 he's apparently interested in now is kind of orchestrating some kind of kind of, kind of grand bargain between Democrats and Republicans between pro-lifers and pro-choice people kind of finding uh, some weak limit that that everybody can agree to which is interesting uh, uh, to talk about whether that anything like that could ever possibly be, you know, love, love your passion, um, get out there and solve it. But, um, but the, 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 the bigger problem was that he then went on, uh, additionally and took some pot shots at Ron DeSantis for signing a six week ban in Florida and basically said, I think that's a terrible thing, a terrible mistake, uh, to, to have that ban there. And that, you know, made a lot of these groups tear out their hair again because he is still not committing to the the kind of federal legislation that they are demanding he commit to. And now, in addition, is kind of for no reason other than to continue to kick Ron DeSantis while he's down, um, attacking this piece of, of of pro-life legislation that a lot of these groups see as kind of like uh, the 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 gold standard state standard, right? They they kind of see this 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 one federal level fifteen week. This is the heart. This is the heartbeat bill, a version of which is passed in other states. But but this is what he's been going after the six week ban, as you right, said, right? Uh, in Florida. Um, and so uh, it's been in- it, but it's been interesting now to see the the somewhat more muted response to these kind of like 
he's 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 kicking pro-lifers even a little harder than he has in the past. He's not just kind of saying, uh, look, I think I can go this without you. I don't think I need to really be courting your support any longer. But he's actually kind of actively disparaging uh, some signature some signature bills of theirs that, um, you know, if, if, if you're in the pro-life movement and your goal is creating as many abortion restrictions as possible to save as many uh, unborn children as possible. Uh, you don't like to hear this kind of thing from from Donald Trump, but he is now 40 points in the lead nationally. He's winning in Iowa. He's winning in New Hampshire. He's winning everywhere. Uh, and a lot of these groups, particularly the groups um, like SBA Pro-Life America, uh, which is the, the one I focused on in, in the item, these groups that are not necessarily grassroots organizing groups so much as they are uh, legislation, uh, legislation um, pushing groups and and kind of influence handling groups in D.C., they are already kind of having to, to seemingly make their peace with the fact that this is going to be their nominee again. He doesn't have deep convictions on the issue, but he was kind of malleable and he went along before. So, so it's, it's kind of like this, as opposed to what you what you would have seen in the past, which was which was always this like, look, here's our lines in the sand. You embrace our policies or we're likely to oppose you. They're already in this much uh, muddier kind of space where, okay, Donald Trump seems to be the guy. Here's how his mind works. Here's how his ego works. If we hit him too hard, he probably hits us right back and he's probably stronger than we are right now. Uh, so how are we going to get to a position where if he's president, he's not closing the door on us. He's letting us come in and, and talk to him about our policy stuff. And, and it's, it's, it, it's just interesting to see that, that uh, uh, balance of power shift in just the last couple of months. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does seem like a, uh, you could see in the successive statements from SBA uh, Pro-Life America President Marjorie Dannenfelser, uh, influential person in Washington in the pro-life movement, really on the campaign side, backing candidates uh, who advocate, you know, particularly at the federal level, who advocate uh, for restrictions on abortion. She had several statements or the, or the organization certainly had several statements over the past couple of days that demonstrates them kind of working out uh, in, in public their position at this point. I mean, the initial statement, right, was um, uh, really kind of ignored what Trump said and ignored Trump in particular and just said, we're at a moment where we need a human rights advocate. We need somebody in the White House uh, who is on our side. Then an additional statement praising DeSantis's heartbeat bill. Why would they praise DeSantis's heartbeat bill? Because Donald Trump attacked it, but they didn't mention that. And then finally on Tuesday, Marjorie Dannenfelser releases uh, or, or says publicly Trump was wrong in attacking the heartbeat bill in Florida. That's maybe the strongest language we heard from her. And then um, a statement that kind of muddled it all together. We urge Trump and DeSantis to focus on their concrete pro-life plan for the future. I mean, th- there's a sense here that the pro-life groups don't really have anywhere else to go. Uh, they're having, as you say, Andrew, to make their peace with Donald Trump uh, because he's likely to be the Republican nominee, uh, a real different dynamic than what has been in the past in Republican primary politics. Let's move on, though, from the primary to the general election. Drucker, um, <laughs> it's a tie, isn't it? Between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that's at least what the polls suggest. The real clear politics average actually has Trump up half a point uh, over Biden 
uh, 45% for Trump, 44.5% for Joe Biden. You can see a few polls where Biden's ahead by a point, where Trump's ahead by a point or two, where they're tied. Uh, This is a pretty even match. Um, It goes back to what you were saying. Uh, uh, Republican primary voters don't see an electability problem for Donald Trump. They see an electability problem for Joe Biden, particularly if Trump is the nominee. What's going on? Well, it's, I, I think this is the biggest point, right? Because you, you can, we continue to hear this from Trump's uh, competitors in the Republican primary, that it's time for fresh leadership, that we need to nominate someone who can win um, in, in 2024 and not get bogged down by you know, all of these court cases and the drama and everything that goes along with Trump. But Republican primary voters see Trump as eminently electable as the strongest candidate to run against Biden. And, you know, notwithstanding, there's some polling here and there that shows, you know, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or or others faring better than Trump, right? Not is still competitive, but not quite as competitive, a little bit more separation. Republican primary voters just don't buy it. And so that has helped frame this, sort of create this idea on the Republican side of the aisle that they've got their incumbent and he's the best choice to run against Biden. And you can't blame them because these general election hypothetical matchups of a rematch between Biden and Trump show Trump very competitive right now, right? I mean, it's been one heck of a summer polling swoon for for Joe Biden. Uh, you know, when you're up by a half a point, the real clear politics average, for all we know, you could be down by a half a point. But what we have seen in the trend line is for Trump versus Biden, Trump's numbers to go up, up, up to reach Biden and then, you know, slightly surpass him. And that's what's important here. And and if you look at, you know, what the, the Biden campaign is doing, they're preparing for a rematch. And um, if you look at Republican v- primary voters, they're almost preferring a rematch. Um, and I think it sort of gets us back to, to one particular point. You cannot win an electability argument when the voters that you're courting with that argument don't buy it. Republican primary voters don't think Trump lost to Biden. At the very least, they think Biden was awarded more votes in an unfair process is about as good as you're going to get. So when Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence talk about fresh leadership and nominating somebody free of all this stuff who can actually win, number one, they don't believe Trump lost. But number two, they're like, but look at these polls. He's doing great. We're a divided country. This is as good as he's ever done. Uh, We've seen him polling like this before and he won and and so i just think that that has created this idea that we are in a general election scenario among uh many voters and we're just starting to see the way the the coverage is framed as though it's a fait accompli well we've talked about in recent weeks on the dispatch podcast uh, this is not in a general election matchup it's not as if Trump is very strong. Uh, He's facing a strong Joe Biden, and it's just a a battle between these two uh, very well-liked with with everybody on their side in their corner intensely for them uh, in a tight re-election. These are two likely nominees of their parties who the general public is not really thrilled with, and yet that's who they're going to be stuck with. 
One of the issues that's dogging Biden in a general election is his age. Uh, there have been polls that that show that people think CNN had a poll, uh, I think it was last month, that said a lot of people, I think something like in the 70 percent, worry that Biden's age, he's 80 now, he'd be 86 at the end of a second term. They worry that his age is going to affect his performance in office. And Joe Biden seems to be recognizing this. Uh, CNN reported that in a, uh, at a campaign uh, fundraising event in New York earlier this week, uh, he said this, a lot of people seem focused on my age. Believe me, I know better than anyone. And then he went on to say, when this nation was flat on its back, I knew what to do. When democracy was at stake, I knew what to do. So he's sort of going the Ronald Reagan route a little bit, saying my age is an asset because I have experience. I know what to do. Voters don't seem to be sold on that yet. Uh, But it does seem like he's acknowledging finally that voters might have a problem with his age. Andrew, what should we make anything of this? Is there going to be uh, an effort by the Biden campaign to use his age as, uh, you know, as as a as an asset? What do you think? Well, I I, I do think the 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 Ronald Reagan comparison is interesting. Uh, it 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 remains to be seen. He's older, you know, he's older than Reagan was. Uh, so so it remains to be seen kind of what the upper bound of that is. But I think the reason this is so such a dangerous issue for Biden is that this is kind of. In terms of public opinion, it's a ratchet that only turns one way, right? He's not getting any younger. None of us are. But he, uh, if, if, a, if a particular voter starts to think about Biden, oh, gosh, like this guy's really, really getting up there. Uh, that guy's not necessarily coming back because, because what are you going to do if you're, if you're Joe Biden um, to, to kind of undo whatever kind of, kind of uh, senior moment uh, you, 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 you put in front of these people in the first place. If you're, if you're just seeming capable, you're just seeming capable. That's kind of like the baseline. But any kind of given moment, any, any gaffe, any moment where you're kind of wandering around the stage looking for someone's hand to shake, you know, in, any one of these things kind of gets added onto the pile of, well, gosh, he's kind of getting up there. Uh, he's, he, he's no spring chicken. Uh, should, there, there's no real way for, for voters to kind of like release that anxiety, if that makes sense. And then the other, the other, important component is that uh, Joe Biden's presumptive running mate a second time around is Kamala Harris, who uh, is less popular than he is, who is, uh, you know, in theory, will will be a net liability for a lot of people on the campaign trail. And uh, and that adds the kind of like the action item to it, where it's like it's, you know, this this could all be kind of academic when you hear a lot of only 33 percent of people in the poll you mentioned uh, saying that they think he's likely to finish out a second term, uh, that would be a lot more academic if all of those people really liked the person who would become president if he if he did not finish out that term. So it's it's a real uh, it's a real possible liability, and it's uh, it's like I say, it can only kind of get worse. It puts Kamala Harris on the ballot in a way that she really wasn't in 2020. Uh, another thing that Joe Biden said at this fundraiser in New York. David brings us to something you were writing about earlier this week in Dispatch Politics. Just a reminder, once again, subscribe to that newsletter Monday, Wednesday, Friday in your inbox. Uh, This is what Biden said. And let there be no question, Donald Trump and his MAGA Republicans are determined to destroy American democracy. And I will always defend, protect and fight for our democracy. That's why I'm running. It reminded me, of course, of what you had written about, uh, but also the Biden message ahead of the 2022 midterms, where he talked about 
MAGA Republicanism and extremism uh, kind of had a, almost a dark message about what could happen if Republicans uh, took control of Congress. Uh, Republicans did take control of the House of Representatives after the 2022 midterms. Uh, they did not in the Senate. So it, there was a sense that maybe those arguments from Biden and Democrats worked in 2022. Walk us through how the campaign, uh, the proto campaign, it's very, uh, very few people uh, so far at that campaign, how they're thinking through how to use Donald Trump and make America great again ism uh, against Republicans and, and to boost Democrats. Yeah, um, I, I think this is a really big deal. First, I just want to mention one thing about the president's age. When you talk to professional Democrats, who get paid to win elections, they have no complaints about how Biden is functioning as president or his work product. They're actually rather uh, praiseworthy. They say the problem is how he presents in public, physically, when he walks, when he speaks, that it, it shows somebody who is not old because he's 81 or about to be 81 and will be, would be 82 when he's inaugurated for a second term. It's because he looks like someone we think of at 81, 82 years old. And we see that, that, that Donald Trump, who's not too far behind Joe Biden in age, doesn't have the same issues in polling because he's perceived as more vibrant and more vital. However, people don't like some of that work product that comes with being more vital. That's just a fact. And that's, that's really an issue here for him. Um, but on the messaging, you know, what I found fascinating and, and what I wrote for Dispatch Politics was how much you are going to hear the Biden campaign, the president himself, and all of his surrogates, right, the people that are going to be speaking on his behalf, use the term MAGA, right? And they are using it and are going to use it possibly as much as, if not more than Donald Trump himself, because they want to split traditional Republican voters, the kind who are, you know, lifetime Republicans, but who tended to vote for Republicans and feel good about Republicans that, that we think of as Reagan era Republicans, traditional conservatives, not the conservative populists that have that sort of taken over the party somewhat since the rise of Trump. And divide them from Donald Trump's loyal base and, and the, the broader Republican base that would vote Republican no matter what, and, and divide those two in a sense by saying, look, these are, these are not normal Republicans that we have issues with. These are lunatic Republicans. These are people that hold irrational views and views that are not acceptable in American society. And by framing everything as MAGAnomics or MAGA Republican or MAGA extremism, then from from the from the, the standpoint of, of democratic messaging and how they feel about this, uh, they feel like they're not really alienating voters that they can win or would win, but that they are finding a way to create a wedge in the Republican Party to bring over to their side voters that usually would vote Republican, that they actually have a chance to win because of dissatisfaction and distaste with Trump and what his influence has done to the GOP in the last eight years. Giving Republicans a permission structure, right? Well, I don't know if it's a permission structure, more is, is not offending them, right? So if you just say, God, these Republicans are all extremists. I mean, look, there are plenty of, of 
Republicans who are sort of like Mitt Romney, reluctant Trump, or Mitt Romney, reluctant Trump, Joe Biden. And then like, let's say in Virginia, you know, voted for Glenn Youngkin or in Georgia in 2022, voted for Brian Kemp. And the last thing you want to do is say, oh, you guys are all a bunch of crazies, right? I mean, no, you, you can't, right. you cannot win over to your side voters b- by saying you're all lunatics, but you know, if you vote for me, then you're fine. So they think <laughs> they've taken this term, right? That Trump popularized, that his supporters embraced. And then saying, yeah, all you people that are queasy about Trump and not sure what to do. Yeah, right. Exactly. Those are the crazies. But, you know, the Republicans that, you know, don't think that don't think John McCain was a traitor for getting captured or whatever the heck it is. Trump said in Iowa eight years ago, like you're all with us and that's fine. And, And that's really what this what this use of MAGA is about. Um, one side note here, you know, I, I remember as we approached the midterm elections last year, I kept saying to myself, I don't know why President Biden keeps focusing on the threat to democracy and referring, you know, constantly raising this issue of MAGA Republicans, because doesn't it just sort of impugn a bunch of voters in the Midwest that maybe would have liked Biden for his pro-union populist elements or whatever? You know, Democrats did really well in that midterm election. They gained a Senate seat. Their losses in the House were small, right? They lost control of the House, the Democrats, but they, they, I mean, this, not only was it not a wave, I mean, it was arguably a very successful election for Democrats, winning key governorships, um, things like that. And so I've said to myself, maybe when you get elected president, you know a thing or two. So Biden has definite challenges. I've talked to Democratic voters tying it back into the age issue that say to themselves, I really think he's been a good president and I will wholeheartedly definitely vote for him again. But God, I wish we had somebody else. And so if, you know, on a, on a, on a spectrum of concerned about age, if I've got Biden partisans who think he's done great, who are absolutely not just saying they're going to support him, but like, I'm absolutely voting for sure saying, I wish we had somebody else. What do you think that does? to the swing voter or the soft Republican, right? It really creates a dilemma of, do I vote at all? Do I just, you know, grin and bear it and vote for Trump because I'm so concerned about age? Well, at least, you know, I think Trump's got all this energy. And and, and so that's, I think, you know, one of the things the president's team is going to have to contend with. I think they'd be well served to embrace it. Stop trying to tell everybody it's not fair. And what about Trump? He's old too. And follow Biden's lead. Yeah, we know it. Old. I get it. I got to prove myself. And just get that issue off the table. I said, yeah, I, what else can I say? You're right. I'm old. Yes, we know. He's old. Now, here's what we're doing. And here's the, here's the, obst- you know, here's the alternative. And stop the hamster wheel of it's not fair. It's not right. Don't you know? He's really an energetic guy. It's so interesting because we focus a lot on how Donald Trump is essentially running as an incumbent in the Republican primary. Um, We haven't really uh, sort of uh, dealt with, and I'm not saying we do that here, we have other things to talk about, but something to think about as we move forward and and even things that we could write about in Dispatch Politics, we're having an editorial meeting here on the podcast live, um, is the way that that benefits Joe Biden, that Joe Biden 
doesn't necessarily have to run as an incumbent all the time. He can run as an insurgent against the incumbent, uh, quote unquote, incumbent Donald Trump. The other thing I am thinking about, and then I promise we'll move on, is I am so interested in slogans and how slogans are used in politics. And it's hard to think of a precedent for an opponent to use his his uh, rival's slogan against him at the same time that the the person is using the slogan uh, themselves. I mean, you think about no new taxes for George H.W. Bush in 1988. Of course, that was used against him in 1992, but that was because he fell short of that pledge. Or you think of hope and change in 2008 for Barack Obama. Well, a lot of Republicans used uh, hope and change in 2012 to say he didn't deliver on hope and change. It didn't really work out for Republicans, but you can at least see where they use that. Here you have Donald Trump saying, I'll make America great again, again. And Joe Biden saying, hey, remember, make America great again. Come join our side if that scares you. It's just a remarkable, remarkable thing. But let's move on now to Capitol Hill. We don't talk a lot about Capitol Hill in dispatch politics and really on the dispatch podcast recently, but everybody's back from recess and we're about to have a shutdown at the end of September. There doesn't seem to be a deal that can be made before then. Kevin McCarthy basically deciding he's not going to hold a vote on a continuing resolution to fund the government. Uh, and so at the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th, the government will run out of funding. There'll be a government shutdown. Some Republicans seem to be okay with this, while the bulk of the Republican conference in the House seems to be a little worried that this is not going to work out well for them politically. Andrew, we're back to shutdown politics. We're back to fiscal brinksmanship politics. Is this going to be good for Republicans to go into a shutdown uh, a year before the presidential election? What's odd is that because the margin of uh, the Republicans majority in the House is so small, usually with these shutdowns, the the conversation is all about, is this going to ultimately hurt Republicans writ large worse or is it going to hurt Democrats writ large worse? But now one of the reasons so many Republicans on the the House side are are so mad is that you have four or five or six or seven uh, kind of bomb throwing Republicans uh, in the House who are enough to derail basically any Republican project who don't have, seem to have the same incentive structure as everybody else. The question is not what is kind of the, uh, the, the most kind of spending cuts and, and, and concessions that we can extract out of our other negotiating partners uh, in the Democratic Senate and uh, from President Joe Biden. They're just really, really mad that Republicans have a majority, but they haven't gotten the things that they want yet. Um, and they and they're willing to kind of take this stand and basically say, well, we're just going to we don't care. We're just going to blow the whole thing up. Like we're not going to we're not going to stand by here and, and let Kevin McCarthy walk all over us by passing a spending package uh, that that doesn't contain the kind of uh uh, the kind of dramatic changes to to, to spending and funding and 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 the, the parliamentary process and all these things that we've long demanded. Um, and you have a whole other, uh, you know, large, large majority of the Republicans in the House uh, who are kind of tearing out their hair about all of this and saying, look, we put together a package that we think is a good starting point for negotiation 
considering the fact that we control one house of Congress and that's it right now. Like we think. And barely that, that they, that that control, as you say, the margin is so small that it's not as if house Republicans have a huge majority that they're right. And so you've, you've seen this really interesting messaging divide where it's the, the kind of the bomb throwers, it's the Matt Gates's of the world. Some of these guys in the house freedom caucus, um, where they're essentially saying, you know, like we're not going to stand for this stuff anymore. We're, we're taking our ball and going home until we see some real changes around here. And then you see some other people messaging, the the package that that McCarthy wants to see passed um, using the same or at least very similar kind of like very, very grassroots conservative language. Like, look, here are the priorities that we got into this package. Uh, it, it does contain funding for the border. It does contain, you know, funding for the military and all these sorts of things. Uh, and 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 we have a couple of Republicans who are, you know, killing it before it can, strangling it in the cradle before it can even get to the Senate to for, for negotiation with with Chuck Schumer. And so they're kind of it's it's completely intractable at this point. We're barreling toward a shutdown. We are not even yet to the point where Republicans are negotiating with Democrats about this, which is the other crazy thing. I mean, usually that's the shutdown, right? It's, it's you have a Republican side and a Democratic side, but we are not even to that point yet with this thing less than two weeks away. I was down on Capitol Hill this week uh, to kind of take the temperature of the House conference. And I would say annoyance is not strong enough of a word. Frustration is not even strong enough of a word for the way that the rank and file of the Republican conference, a very conservative Republican conference, feels about these uh, holdouts. Uh, I talked to Michael Lawler, who's a uh, Republican from New York, uh, who who referred to Matt Gates and uh, the other, like you said, five, six, maybe maybe seven Republicans who were holding out on this deal as circus performers. And Lawler is an interesting case because he's one of 18 House Republicans, to bring it back to elections here, who hails from a district that Joe Biden won in 2020. There are 18 Republicans from Joe Biden districts. Uh, It is not in their interest to have the House conference, the House majority, uh, the House Republican majority, to look incompetent, like they can't get things done. Uh, and that is what they are very concerned about. And he, you look at somebody like Matt Gates. Um, I was struck by the uh, amount of uh, reporters and TV cameras surrounding him because he has some power now. Uh, and I think a lot of Republicans look at that and think um, this is about personal advancement and ambition. Uh, there are those even in the House Freedom Caucus, who actually are pragmatic uh, in their own way. They want to get something done. They they have the majority, a lot of them for the first time ever in their careers, just a couple of, uh, of terms for some of these guys. Uh, and then most of that has been in the minority. And, uh, and they want to get something done. And they see this ambition from people like Matt Gates uh, and think, what are we really here to do? But Drucker, we've got to talk about some other elections that could be affected by a shutdown. Virginia, the old dominion where I live, uh, there is some off-year elections because Virginia has to do everything strangely. And they've got the House of Delegates uh, are up uh, in November, just a few weeks away. Lots of federal government jobs in Virginia, both military uh, down in uh, the Norfolk area and the Hampton Roads area. And of course, outside of Washington and Northern Virginia, a lot of federal government jobs. could we be seeing uh, Republicans who look like they might be in a good position to win the House of Delegates of Virginia shooting themselves in the foot over a shutdown across the Potomac? Uh, it's possible. Look, there's a lot of um, 
a lot of people are paying attention to these off-year elections in Virginia because Governor Glenn Youngkin um, is leading the charge to help his party flip control of the state Senate, right? So Republicans control the lower house, the House of Delegates. Uh, They need to win four seats in the state Senate to win control of the Senate. And then with full control of the legislature, there's a number of things Youngkin can get through the General Assembly that he can't get now. A 15-week limit on abortion rights is one of them, but there are a whole bunch of fiscal things and education reforms and things that that are going to have a a, a broad base of support. Uh, It also will go a long way towards defining uh, Governor Youngkin's political future which is something we took a look at. Uh, we've taken a look at this month in Dispatch Politics and on, on the website at the Dispatch. So a lot of attention. And, you know, the question is going to be if we barrel past, you know, September 30th and the government shuts down, as appears likely right now, because a lot of Republicans in Washington don't share Governor Yunkin's, uh preference for governing, is does the general incompetence of the Republican Party impact voter turnout and voter behavior in these November 7th legislative elections. Um, I went and, and took a look for something that'll, that will run um, in the Dispatch Politics newsletter Friday about how the 2013 Obamacare shutdown impacted the governor's race in 2013 for Virginia governor. Tara McAuliffe narrowly won that. The Democrat defeated Ken Cuccinelli, the state attorney general at the time, now running the DeSantis Super PAC, and I don't, I don't know what the call is up to these days. Um, and it, the general consensus was that the shutdown did have some impact, and negatively, when it came to uh, Cuccinelli's narrow loss to McAuliffe in that race, it affected turnout, it affected voter behavior. And the reason these shutdowns can uh, have a bigger effect in Virginia than elsewhere in the country is... There are a lot of federal workers, but there are also just people working in the private sector whose industries rely on the government. And there's also because, you know, that's the local news is you're just confronted more with the idiocy of these government shutdowns um, and it impacts your view of the party. So, you know, while Governor Yunkin is leading a very professional, sophisticated effort to get these state Senate candidates across the line in competitive districts and, and, and hold the, the House of Delegates with about you know, 10 competitive races, um, it's got to be a concern because this can be a game of inches, especially, look, ten, Virginia is more decidedly Democratic today, capital D, than it was 10 years ago. Right. Notwithstanding Yunkin's victory in 2021, winning by two points in a state Biden won by 10. It is really in the Trump era uh, become more comfortable in the Democratic fold, become more blue uh, than it than it was 10 years ago. And in a game of inches, you need every advantage you can get, or at least you need to stop external negative things from happening. So it's something to keep an eye on. If Democrats can hold control of the Senate, it's going to be a real feather in, in Biden's cap, whether he had, he had anything to do with it or not. Um, and just as you know, one final example, as we noted in Dispatch Politics this week, Democrats won two important special elections, one for a, a seat in the New Hampshire State House, one for a seat in the Pennsylvania State House. Um, 
putting them uh, one seat away from from nominal control of the state house of representatives in New Hampshire and preserving their narrow hold on the Pennsylvania state house of representatives. All is to say is Democrats are not as vulnerable nationally in all of these races as Biden's vulnerability might suggest. And all of the issues in which parties behave can have an impact on these bigger races that we pay attention to. All right. Well, let's close out this episode with some not worth your time. And I want to dive into this issue that <laughs> our colleague uh, Nick Kataja wrote about uh, in his newsletter on Wednesday. There's been a change in the Senate dress code. Now, this isn't a rule change. This is a custom change. It, it, there's no rule that you had to wear as a, as a male senator a coat or anybody, really, uh, a coat and tie uh, and sort of business wear. But it has essentially been a custom, an accepted custom uh, on the Senate floor in the U.S. Capitol. And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, essentially relaxed those rules, those unofficial rules, uh, and uh, and, and is not enforcing them. Coat and tie no longer required if you're a U.S. senator. If you're a staffer, if you're a page, if you're anybody else who is on the Senate floor, you've got to. But if you're a senator, uh, there's no expectation, formal or otherwise, for you to wear a coat and tie. This seems to be all in the service of helping John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democratic senator um, who has suffered some health issues over the past year plus. Uh, and who also likes to wear hoodies and shorts and doesn't like to wear the monkey suits uh, that uh, that we uh, force ourselves into for business uh, apparel. David, let's start with you. Is this is this issue is worrying about this? I mean, again, our our our, our colleague Nick said that there's no way to avoid sounding priggish and frankly old when grousing about senators refusing to wear ties. Uh, you're usually a very nice dressed uh, man, David Drucker. Uh, is this worth our time to be complaining about it, to be talking about this dress code? I mean, I think a little bit. I mean, look, I'm old school, right? I think you should dress the part um, and and that it, how you present yourself in certain situations has says a lot about about how you feel about an institution or somebody you're meeting with whenever obviously right now I'm very casually dressed but whenever I'm on Capitol Hill whenever I'm going to interview a lawmaker whenever I'm going to be on TV you know I always wear a tie um I always wear a jacket it's just it it, it just feels right and I I don't know if I don't know if the issue here is, and there are two issues here. One, I, the custom, I, as human beings, I think there are symbolic ways in which we show our respect and there's a word I'm looking for, but it, it helps exalt a certain institution or a, a certain way of treating people, right? In other words, I wouldn't show up. I mean, there you have to wear some clothes, right? I mean, there's always gradations of well, what should you wear? <laughs> I mean, is you know, if Fetterman, you know, we're we're going to talk about Fetterman, right? But okay, you don't have to wear a coat and tie. Well, can you show up without a shirt? Oh, well, no, you can't do that. Why not? Oh, so you're saying there's a line? You you've just changed the line. So actually, I think this is a really interesting discussion, not about 
an elimination of standards, but just a change in what you feel is a proper standard. Um, secondly, I, I don't understand why the majority leader had to do this for one senator. Um, unless there's something we don't know about the mental health issues he has suffered and how it relates to his wardrobe. There's nobody else we can think of in the United States Senate that this impacts. And maybe this has something to do with how it's impacting his mental health. Maybe his ability, I mean this sincerely, maybe his ability to wear hoodies and shorts and whatever shoes he wears is like a really big deal to him mentally. But if not, he was wearing suits. I, I don't quite understand the need to do this. But again, you know, if somebody wanted to prove a point and show up one day in shorts, flip-flops and no shirt or a bathing suit, flip-flops and no shirt and say, yeah, you know, look, I just got back from the pool. You know, I'm sure somebody would say, well, we didn't mean you could do that. Oh, OK. So I think it's worth our time in this regard. It's a really interesting discussion to have about what are your standards and why do you have them? That's right. Uh, Andrew, John Fetterman was in the presiding officer's seat wearing his short sleeve shirt, wearing his shorts uh, as the resident young person on this podcast uh, right now. How do you defend that? You're asking you're 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 putting me in charge of being our Fetterman our Fetterman whisperer, which I don't know if I'm I'm comfortable fulfilling that. I I find the whole thing extremely silly, right? I mean, I just I think the whole thing, like, I, you 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 kind of alluded to David the uh, the the connection between this and his mental mental health, and and the guy has had a horrible run of luck, terrible stroke that has left him with a long recovery and a lot of depression coming out of that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very happy for him that that a lot of that seems to be improving the auditory processing and the depression both uh, seem to have improved a lot for him. Um, I don't really understand where this exact thing fits in. Yes, I mean, the guy hates to wear a suit, like, sure. Um, it, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. Uh, me personally, I, I, I consider the gym shorts and the hoodie to be kind of like depression wear, you know, like that's, that, that, that's kind of the day where I never got going, you know what I mean? Um, so it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to get into that headspace and, and comment on the thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the optics are silly. I think the guy should, there, uh, can we also talk about the fact there's a lot of intermediary steps between a full suit and tie and a Carhartt hoodie and gym shorts? Like, I mean, denim is quite stretchy now. Like it's, it's comfortable. You can, you can buy comfortable jeans, um, you know, wear a linen jacket, John, uh, Fetterman, Senator Fetterman. Uh, I don't know. It seems a little, seems a little silly. That's a good point. Dress sneakers, stretchy jeans. You can be comfortable, but I, I do wonder, uh, it, at what point did comfort become the priority over, over, as you were saying, Drucker, respect, um, respect, not just for, uh, your colleagues, respect for your staff who again, still have to wear shirts and ties and jackets, um, but respect for the institution of the Senate. Um, I mean, again, it's, it is hard to, as Nick says, it's hard to talk about this without sounding like a fogey uh, waving your finger at the kids. Although John Fetterman is older than I am. Um, I know, right? you know, but I was thinking about this uh, <laughs> exactly last week. Uh, I sort of unexpectedly uh, found out that I was uh, being asked uh, to make plans that day uh, to go down to Capitol Hill and interview a member of Congress. Um, and I had showed up to our much more relaxed, I would say, office at the dispatch uh, without a coat and tie. And so I went home 
and got a coat and tie so that I could wear a coat and tie. I wasn't even in the Capitol. I was in uh, one of the office uh, buildings uh, on Capitol Hill. And I'm not saying this to say, oh, look, what a, uh, what a great and respectful person I was. It just, as you said, Drucker, it felt right. I was talking to a member of Congress. Um, I, should, uh, I should sort of dress the part. Um, and, and I don't know where, com- I mean, I would have been much more comfortable to interview him in the, you know, uh, loose moisture wicking collared shirt uh, that I had on. Uh, it just, it didn't feel right. And it feels like uh, we're bending the rules in order to accommodate somebody uh, uh, who essentially has his own uniform, which this is, this is a uniform that he's worn ever since he was lieutenant governor, ever since he was mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, to sort of symbolize and signal that he's a populist. Drucker, final thoughts. First of all, I, I almost wonder if our office is now kind of like Fetterman's office because our erstwhile co-founder, Steve Hayes, is a huge fan of hoodies and casual dress. But I always feel compelled to at least, you know, wear dress shoes and a, a collar at the, you know, at least it just doesn't feel right. But, you know, I think the the, the change in custom uh, and the way they did it is indicative of the fact that they actually think there's something to the custom because they didn't relax it for everybody, right? If you're a staffer, if you're on the Senate floor and lots of of Senate aides are on the Senate floor when it's in session for all sorts of work reasons, right? And there are people, not just the senator who controls the floor from the dais, but like there are, there are there's Senate staff that helps, you know, collect, you know, count votes and they all have to dress. So everybody in the United States Senate, uh, other than members, still have to dress. So if none of this mattered, then they just would have said, hey, man, whatever floats your boat. And what's interesting here is they could have, by the way, they could have relaxed and said, listen, we're just going to do business casual now. But but instead, they just said, you know, however Fetterman wants to roll out of bed, that's what you get to do. Again, unless your staff. And I don't see, it's not like the custom was, well, as a United States Senator, whenever you're in public or whenever you're, you know, engaged in official business, you must wear a coat and tie. This is strictly a Senate floor thing. As Tom Cotton was telling me on the Dispatch podcast the other day, when I interviewed him, he's like, you know, occasionally I, you know, get here just in time for a vote. And if I wasn't in a coat and tie, just like open the door, peek my head in, you know, vote yay or nay, signal to the counter, vote counter and, and, you know, disappear. There's so many ways they could have done this. They didn't properly explain it. They clearly believe that dress matters, or they just would have relaxed it for basically everybody. Uh, and they didn't. And, you know, over on the House side where they, they can't even, you know, figure out how to pass a spending bill, you still have to wear a coat and die to get into the Speaker's lobby. So I, I find that kind of in the Speaker's lobby is that area just outside the House floor. So if you want to go in there, interview members of Congress. Um, whether you're a member, whether you're a staffer, whatever, like there's actually a dress code, uh, you know, in the quote unquote lower house. So it, it's kind of funny that the Senate is, is so relaxed right now. Yeah. Who would have thought the, uh, the house would have the upper hand when it comes to class, uh, over the Senate? Uh, nobody could have predicted that, but that's the Washington. That's the uh, politics that we operate in today. Uh, David Drucker, Andrew Egger, Thank you so much for joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. Dispatch Politics is in your inbox every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from us. You just got to sign up. 
and also go to uh, thedispatch.com. Become a member. Uh, we'd really love you to join us and see all the offerings, newsletters, uh, and podcasts, and Dispatch Live and live events. Uh, you got to be a member to check all of that out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.